Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about Jesus Christ and what his death means for yourself. Um, 
This is he is the light of the world, and he's the hope of the world for salvation. And that is uh, the host, Letitia, me, myself, Thomas, and uh, our third host, who can't be with us today, Melissa. She is doing some awesome, awesome work um, out at the abortion clinic uh, near her. And we wish her the very best today that she gets great contacts. But uh, we want to know that we stand for life. And the life that is in Jesus Christ is uh, kind of the ultimate idea of what we talk about on this show in light of all the pro-life issues that we bring on air. So um, I want to start off our show by uh, telling you a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. We have a lot of news. That, and one big story that we're going to cover, and probably will take the majority of the time that we're talking today about, and that is the Megan Huntsman case. And if you haven't heard of it, um, we're going to get to it. And if you um, were here with us several weeks ago during our rebroadcast of the abortion debate between uh, our guest today, Clinton Wilcox, from Life Training Institute, and uh, internet and television kind of personality atheist Matt Dillahunty. Uh, that was a very dynamic and interesting debate that we had on air. It was uh, recorded live, but it was broadcast for our other, our sister show, Theology Matters, as well as right here on True Life Fridays Radio. If you want to go back and listen to it, um, it is a fantastic exchange between two very well-versed people in what they were trying to say, um, pro-choice versus pro-life. And I would encourage you to download that broadcast. It has almost, I think, almost 3,000 hits, which is phenomenal. Uh, we loved it, and um, we want everybody to catch up on it. And we're going to talk to Clinton later on in this broadcast. And so we're going to take a real quick break right now and find out what's wrong with our audio. So thanks a lot for joining us. We will be right back.
And we are back with more True Life Fridays Radio. Let's give this show a proper beginning, shall we? Hey, Thomas. Hey, Leticia. You know how All right. we do it. Do us the honors. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 said, I record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life so that you and your seed might live. Dear Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we give you glory, honor, and praise. Father God, as we get ready to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, we give specific, special emphasis to the life issue today because of the fact that Jesus Christ died so that we might live. And he was the ultimate example of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. So, Father God, we ask you today that you would bless our guests, bless the families of the hosts and our hosts who wasn't able to be here with us as she's out doing very powerful and awesome work for Father, we ask that the, that the information that comes out of this show today will be a tool for those in the life movement to be able to go out and effectively spread the message of life, specifically in the name of Jesus Christ. We say we love you and we bless you. In the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, So like I said at the beginning of the program, uh, we've got this main story that I really wanted to get out here um, that, you know, it's been a few days and I haven't heard any follow-up. It is the story about the Utah mother named Megan Huntsman who was arrested after investigators found the bodies of seven babies stuffed in boxes in her home. Um, And that sounds pretty shocking, but I have to, you're going to have to forgive me. I, as I said in the description on our webpage uh, for the show, if you're looking at that, um, I said the story shocked America, and I do believe it has a little bit, but I, I was not shocked when I learned about this for the first time. Now, I, I don't know. Uh, call me cynical, call me bitter, call me jaded, whatever. I, I don't think I'm any of those things, at least with right right now <laughs> uh, but right. there is something there is something about this story that I, I just you know I'm not bored if that's what you're thinking something about this story that I don't know I've just kind of been expecting it if you you know kind of catch what I mean by that I yes. mean I've always I've always thought that it was just a matter of time that everything we on the pro-life side of issues have said that the horrors of a worldview that says that only some people are worth keeping alive on this earth would work its way from prediction to reality. So, you know, not, not like world history, 
but here and now and in our contemporary kind of post-Christian culture that has a history. We have a history of fighting against murder and injustice in this way. But in, and I'm not saying that has never happened in the past and that more horrible things haven't happened in the past, but I, I, I'm not surprised, and I guess I'm not surprised when I read about this, that I felt like something like this is eventuality. It was an eventuality that this would happen, that we would find a home with murdered infants and multiple murdered infants, and people would be trying to wrestle with just how this happened, what brought this person to do something like this. I think it's one of these moments that we're going to point to um, in retrospect and say that unless you have a solid pro-life ethic in our society, um, things like this will continue to happen, and I don't want to say at a greater frequency. I want to say that it will continue to happen, um, and the response to it will be shock, but it will also be to, to um, bury, the, bury it. So, so here's the story before I talk about it talk about that part um let me pull it up um this i got from the huffington post believe it or not i have something to say about that in just a minute but um huntsman a 39 year old mother told police she either strangled or suffocated uh six of the babies found she said one of them died of being stillborn, but she strangled or suffocated her babies immediately after they were born. She wrapped up the babies, put them in a box, and then kind of hid them in the garage uh, in her house. And this was over a 10-year period of time. What they don't know right now is why she did that, if she has some kind of mental illness or, or something. Something is, is causing her to do this. What people can't understand is that she has, at the same time, hidden all these babies in her, dead babies in her garage. She has two other children, one of which was born during this 10-year period where she was killing other babies. So, you know, that child today is, I think, about, you know, 12, somewhere between 12 and 15 years old. So people are trying to figure her out. And meanwhile, she's been arrested. She's been charged um, with murder of at least six counts. I think, I don't know if they're giving her seven counts. Uh, And her bail is $1 million for each baby. I think it's six. I think they charged her with six counts of murder. So it's $6 million. Wow. That's right. Which is a lot. Yeah. And I think it I think that's appropriate uh given what has happened. But the thing is, um so there's there's issues, there's more questions than there are answers. There's questions about who's the father of this ba- of these babies, is it her ex-husband? You know, he's been in prison for on charges of trying to possess tools to make methamphetamines. He's been, you know, in and out of her life. So we really don't know. And and there's the thing. There's the thing. This is the part that I want to focus on. We have this much information. I am not entirely sure we're going to have more than this. 
when this story first hit the news a couple of days ago, I think it was about Monday, I really didn't jump in and post a lot about it. In fact, I avoided talking about the story at all because I wanted to see how the mainstream media was going to handle it. There, there are a handful of printed stories online, but not a lot of television treatment and not a lot of follow-up. So the story that I just read from was not two days ago. It was back um, on the 13th. Yeah. It was printed on Sunday. It's been almost a week. And I haven't read much more in detail that, other than what HuffPo's already said um, on other sites. So now the story is still rather new, but I have a feeling that it will get little future coverage because of the implication of seven dead infants or six being killed shortly after birth, not unlike the Ariel Castro case. Does anybody notice that after Ariel Castro was arrested, there was very little mention of his trial? There was. I'm not saying that there wasn't any. There was little mention of his trial and and conviction. And some news outlets did cover it, uh, particularly pro-life and conservative outfits. But the mainstream media did not give it a lot of attention. And to this day, we don't know what happened exactly with the investigation at the Castro house. Just doing a cursory Google search, I'm not changing the subject, I'll get back to the Megan Huntsman case. Just doing a cursory search online for Ariel Castro investigation, I pulled up three pages of information, stories about his suicide in prison, but nothing about the investigation that went on at his home. I find that is a big, huge gap in our knowledge. And this is just speculation, but it's, it's my educated speculation given the fact that the media has planned what it wants to say about certain things. And with the Ariel Castro case, I don't think they want to talk about and investigate what happened in his home, and they don't want anybody, really, to find out if there's anything. So they're burying it. And I have a feeling that they're going to do something similar with the Megan Huntsman case, that we're going to find out a lot, maybe some, about her trial, and she will be convicted on something. I, you know, I think that this is, but I think the bulk of the information of what we're going, that we've received so far is going to be it. I think this is it, which is so sad because what has happened here is what happened with the Kermit Gosnell case. Ooh, you know, I'm bringing in three different cases and trying to tie them all together. Remember what I said about Ariel Castro. That when he was arrested, the best thing he could do in his defense, because they were going to charge him with the murder of unborn children for the women that he, for his captives, that he impregnated over the course of, uh, the 10 to 12, 20 to 15 years that he, they, he had them, they had conceived children multiple times. 
and he had killed every single one of those unborn babies, either by beating the woman um, or or poisoning. I'm not really sure, but a lot of it was by through beating, causing a miscarriage, abortion, same thing. Um, and that he was going to be charged with those murders. Well, I never heard anything about that in the case um, much. It wasn't covered. But suddenly he was convicted and he went to prison and then he killed himself. <laughs> and that's the end. Um, and I think that what I said about what I said about him when he was arrested was that the best thing he could do for himself is hire himself a Planned Parenthood attorney to argue for the fact that those babies that he killed were not really alive and they were not really human beings. Thanks, Cecile. That for his chances of acquittal. He should have done that. And I'm going to say the same, almost the same thing about Megan Huntsman. Although it's really harder to say because infants were born alive. Um, given Now here's the tie to the Kermit Gosnell case. He, Kermit Gosnell essentially did virtually the same thing. Killed infants that were born alive late, late term. So the difference in age is negligible. And I think for Megan Huntsman, her best defense, I think she's going to lose anyway and go to prison, but I think her best defense is to take the pages out of the court transcripts from Kermit Gosnell's case and argue for herself that way. You know, that's the best thing her attorneys can do for her is to take a chapter out of Kermit Gosnell's life to court. Thomas? Yeah, I'm here listening. <laughs> okay. I'm just listening in. Got a got a few situations that were working out, so I'm just listening to your commentary. But no, um, that whole situation I read that and it just it just stick to my stomach, and and you know it makes me wonder if the abortion supporters are going to try to use that as a justification for like, to continue legalized abortion. Do you see the catch twenty two? Uh, can you can you kind of tease that out a little more? Well, basically, in a nutshell, they would say they would say that this is the reason why we should keep legalized abortion because of the fact that you have parents who don't want their babies in there doing what this lady did by killing six of her babies who were born alive. So I'm guessing that would be their argument for that. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, we could actually go a couple of ways. <laughs> we could say, yes, yeah, so this is, we, we could say that if she had just gone to an abortionist instead of killing her children in her own home, she would not right. be facing murder charges at all. She would be a free right. woman. You know, and, right. and how do you weigh that in light of the fact that if, if if she had done that, we would still have six murdered children, but nobody going to prison. Right. But if right. she, but because she waited uh, too long, she therefore has to go to prison. So you know, the difference between prison is a matter of time. 
kill right. them before and you don't go to prison. Kill them after and you do. <laughs> it is, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous. It is a ridiculous state of our law today. Um, the other way, the other way you could take this is that um, here's our, our our argument for legalized infanticide after birth abortion. Right. So and women you, like her. Yeah, go ahead. I want I want to hear what you have to say about this. Well, I was going to say the third in the third equation in this whole situation would be what about what about disrespecting life, period, the lives of the baby's right to be born? If, you know, and just to be brutally honest, if she didn't want the baby, she should have kept her legs closed. She did not have to have sex or she could have used protection. I know to I know to the selfish folks out there, they say, well, that doesn't feel good. Well, you know, you have the other alternative. Now you're... Now you're facing life for the murder of six babies that were yours in a six million dollar file. So, I mean, the law, the the choices that you have versus what she's facing now. I mean, life would be easy. Life would be easy. So, that and and you're right. Because now those those people who are advocating for after birth abortion, they're gonna try to pounce on that like there's no tomorrow to you know to embrace the killing of yeah well, after they're born, and that's yeah, sick. It, it is disturbing. I think that this is a real good test case, and how the te- they're they're probably gonna treat this as a test case, and what the temperature and tolerance of of society is right now i can tell you that there is no tolerance for this um because right. we still haven't what not because people are noble and kind and great and can see the moral wrong in this so clearly but because uh because people still have that idea that infants that are born alive should be allowed to live i mean just uh because because we're not used to seeing um, infanticide defended, right, and in right. fact, our abortion laws are are up to the point of birth. So, right. you know, emphatically, they kind of implicitly tell us that after a child has been born, yeah, your right to abortion ends. So there and, really isn't a, a defense for afterbirth abortion, as far right. as you know, you know, people's sentiments are right now. But what well, I was going to say. The second option, I'll let you you get to that in just a second. The second option that's available to this is, I mean, this is an argument, like you said, for for legalizing infanticide. Um, After all, isn't the same kind of argument made for abortion that women, somebody's going out there, some woman out there for whatever reason, uh, the reason doesn't matter, is going to kill her children anyway, so why don't we legalize it? Make right. it safer. Exactly. Make it safer. Why don't we have clinics open up for women to kill their infant children so that it can be safe, legal, and rare? I mean, the same <laughs> argument can apply. Yeah, doesn't that but, sound uh, absurd? <laughs> well, absurd, you know, he, here's the thing that no matter how much 
you've explained this and you've and you've explained on previous shows before. I still cannot wrap my head around the fact that there are people and there's a whole lot of people in this country that think that just because a woman pregnant when she's poor, that baby's better off dead. So here's what I'm trying to wrap my brain around. How's the baby better off dead? It's dead. Now, granted, it's in heaven with Jesus, and we know that. But basically, by making that decision, and I'm and I'm gonna make a um, and I'm gonna make a absolute statement of morality. By making that choice to kill that baby based on the fact that it could potentially grow up in a hardship life, we as human beings and those who support that, they did something that God Himself didn't even do. God, at least when he created that baby in the womb, gave that baby the potential to have a right to life. And Become the, the president of the United States? Exactly. Yep. Barack <laughs> Obama. Like him or like him, love him or hate him, he's still... I'm sorry, I'm probably going to get hate mail for that one, aren't I? Yeah, probably. <laughs> but he still was given life, given the opportunity to rise to the highest office in the land. But what made him any better than those babies whose life are snuffed out, the very lives who he as president supports the exterminating of. Yeah, we'll right. probably get him out for that too, but who cares? It's time <laughs> to keep it real. Well, and this is this is the consistency. We're just asking for people to be consistent with their views. And exactly. um, so, so, yeah, there we go. Um, we're going to take a quick break and come back with our guest, Clinton Wilcox. We are a wonderful guest coming up, so stay with us. All right. And audio does not work. Hello. All right, we're going to. <laughs> All right, the uh, the buttons aren't working for me. Wonderful technology we have here. Um, so I'm going to get. So we'll talk about one of our sponsors for True Life Fridays Radio has become a very um, kind and good friend of the program, and that is Lifeboat Coffee Company. You can visit their website at lifeboatcoffee.com and just sample their truly cruelty-free coffee that they have. That's my moniker for them. I think they're going to trademark my moniker for them pretty soon. I'm pulling for that. And if you are um, in any way thinking about making your dollars work for the pro-life cause, they give 10% of uh, every purchase to the pro-life organization that's registered with them of your choice. And uh, pretty soon, True Life Fridays Radio is going to be one of them. So if you are a fan of the show, we encourage you to check out lifeboatcoffee.com. We're going to be um, listed there very shortly. Um, in the meantime, choose from the, under the other wonderful uh, life 
affirming pro-life groups um, on their website. And if you want great coffee, they have great coffee and tea, as well as other natural products as well. So lifeboatcoffee.com. So we are moving on and talking about uh, what happens. So if you were, okay, so if you were with us several weeks ago when we replayed a debate with TV personality atheist, he's kind of an atheist following, he's his own program, Matt Dillahunty, Um, our wonderful co-host, Melissa, had organized and arranged for Dillahunty to debate pro-life advocate Clinton Wilcox, who works for Life Training Institute. He writes regularly for Life Training Institute's blog. He also blogs at Secular Pro-Life, interestingly enough. We'll have questions about that. And has done a lot of training and works with students with Justice for All. And if you're familiar with Justice for All, they are kind of like, a, they are not kind of like, they are exactly a college project um, meant to put out information in large billboard fashion about the the harms and the truth about what abortion does to unborn children and seek to convince college students, um, women, college women who are the bulk of your abortion people who have, um, search for abortion and need abortion, apparently, um, to try to convince them of the nature of what they're doing, which is murdering unborn children. So I want to welcome to our program Clinton Wilcox. Um, and so he's going to answer some questions for us. He's going to talk, us about, talk to us about what he thought about the debate and uh, really get into some really deep issues, even within uh, the pro-life community. So thank you for joining us, Clinton. Welcome to True Life Fridays Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, welcome back, I should say. Um, you were here uh, in a pre-record, but it was great to have you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, so um, first of all, I'd like to ask you about, let's, let's first go talk about uh, what you do um, with Life Training Institute and some of the other writing projects that you do and the other uh, pro-life organizations. So tell us a little bit about that and kind of include in there your personal motivation for being involved in, you know, fighting for, to fighting, I should say, fighting against uh, legalized abortion. All right, well, you've given me quite a task here. Sure, uh, your life story, please. Life Training Institute is an organization that is, um, that is headed up by Scott Klusendorf. And their mission is to go to high schools and junior highs and give presentations on the pro-life message. And so my, uh, currently what I'm doing with Life Training Institute is I am writing for their blog, uh, and I'm also answering questions that are submitted to their websites and things of that nature. But it will involve some speaking in the future for me. So that's essentially what Life Training Institute does and, and what I do with them. Um, as far as my motivation for being involved in the pro-life movement, uh, when I got out of high school, I started attending college, and I took a, a public speaking class. And one of the speeches I had to deliver was on a controversial topic, and the topic that I chose just kind of out of thin air was abortion. So as I was researching the topic, I started learning about it. I had already, always been pro-life because I grew up a Christian, and that was just kind of what Christians did. They were you know, pro-life and conservative and that kind of thing. But as I 
really researched the issue and started learning what abortion actually was and the sheer numbers of it, that over one million unborn children every year are aborted, um, killed in, in gruesome ways. It was, I delivered the speech, but it was something that I decided that I, I just couldn't sit back and allow it to keep going on with, without speaking up. So I started giving a couple of presentations at my church, and then my sister, uh, who knew that I was interested in, in pursuing the, in pursuing things in the pro-life field, introduced me to uh, Josh Brom, who uh, who is a local pro-life person here. He uh, he came from Georgia, but he um, he's one of the he works for um, Right to Life of Central California and heads up a podcast called Life Report, and. It just kind of um, kind of went from there. He started getting me involved in doing things with Justice for All, and eventually um, Scott became aware of me and wanted to bring me on to Life Training Institute, and so that's where I am now. Cool. Very nice. Um, so tell us a little bit what you – now, a part of your profile says you do some blogging, and it does appear on Secular Pro-Life blog, or the right. blogs that Secular Pro-Life does. What, do you, what kind of work do you do um, that gets put on there? Well, uh, Secular Pro-Life is an organization that is, uh, that, that is mainly run by atheists and agnostics, but they, uh, they want to bring pretty much everyone in the pro-life community together who are interested in making secular arguments against abortion. So uh, I blog there, and there, there's a, a Mormon who blogs there, and other religious people as well as atheists and agnostics. The, the main purpose is that we want to make the secular case against abortion. And as our, our country has become more secular, if we're going to make abortion illegal again, we're going to have to show that there is a, a compelling secular non-religious case for, uh, for the pro-life position in order to get that done. And so that's really um, their mission. And so the articles that, you, that I write that I submit to their website are articles on, on the secular case for the pro-life position when it comes to uh, making the general pro-life position or against bodily rights arguments or personhood arguments, that kind of thing. Mhm. And so okay, so I have a question about um about that. What is mm-hmm. So a lot of people think that a lot of atheists and agnostics think that the pro-life case can't be made without an appeal to theism or the Bible or Christianity. And so what is the strongest pro-life argument from a secular perspective that you have come across or that you've used along those lines? Yeah, uh, well, to be clear, I, I find the religious argument compelling. I mean, I'm a Christian, and I believe that mm-hmm. ultimately what grounds our value as human beings is that we are created in God's image. But if I'm going to be talking to a non-religious person who doesn't take the Bible seriously, then obviously they're not going to be convinced by religious arguments. If they don't take the Bible seriously, I can't appeal to the Bible as an authority. So the authorities that they recognize are the authorities of science and philosophy. So those are the areas that I appeal to. Essentially, we know that the unborn are human beings biologically from fertilization. Every embryology textbook says this. Um, in fact, embryologists consistently agree without, without serious controversy that the unborn are one of us biologically from fertilization. So, um, so the pro-life position is just that the unborn don't differ from us in any morally relevant way that would justify killing them when we can't kill someone outside the womb. So we can appeal to the science that they're human beings from fertilization, and we can also appeal to the philosophy that, um, that every, every human being outside the womb has equal value, that 
uh, and that whatever grounds our value as human beings cannot be something that comes in degrees, otherwise our value would come in degrees. So the only thing that every single human being has that we all have equally, because everyone differs in you know, size, uh, level of development, um, their degree of dependency, their eye color, hair color, height, weight, uh, uh, sex, race, uh, you know, all these kinds of things, they're all different. The only thing that we all have in common is our humanness. And this is, a, this is a property that the unborn share with us from fertilization. So if it's wrong to kill us because we're humans, now obviously we don't have to take a position on whether or not there really is a soul in order to say it's wrong to kill someone. So if the unborn share the property that grounds our value as human beings, then the unborn must have value as human beings as well. Um, that's, 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 just, that's great because I've always heard from the secular pro-abortion side that unless I appeal to theism or Christianity or the Bible that I don't have an argument outside of that and you know that's refreshing to hear that even those that don't have a faith or don't profess the faith or any belief in in God um, or, or any religion can can make an argument and a consistent one for the life of the unborn um, right. Like you said, I think ultimately that 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 kind of ethic has to be grounded in our view, our worldview that regards the Creator, regards a, a God. That um, otherwise, you know, morals are are construct. Um, but right. you know, I think it's refreshing to hear that, especially bringing the science into it, because if anything, as you and I are, are very frequently exposed to this type of reasoning that Christians and people who believe in God are forever abandoning science um, for the sake of our religious point of view. Right. But to then turn around and use science, and what has been the response? Have, have you seen, um, what has been the response to this, this very robust scientific consistency um, in the pro-life argument from those who support abortion? Um, well, I do eventually get people who try to deny the science, which is very difficult to do because it, it really is a true thing that, that all embryologists, whether pro-life or pro-choice, agree that the unborn is one of us biologically. And so my, my point of view is I'm not a scientist, but if we have both pro-life and pro-choice embryologists who are the experts agreeing on this scientific fact, then who am I to disagree with that? So I, I find that even though I'm not a scientist, I can, I can bring that forward with confidence because we have pro-life and pro-choice scientists who, are, who agree. There's, there's absolutely no debate on whether the unborn is one of us biologically. They are. Where the debate lies is in the personhood. So if someone is going to deny the science, well, I have a question for them. Uh, it, it's almost pretty much a given that the person I'm talking to believes in evolution. So if I, so if I meet someone who... Who, uh, who denies the science of, he, of when human life begins, my question is going to be to them, um, why is science reliable when it comes to the age of the earth and whether or not we evolved, but it's not reliable when it comes to when human life begins? In fact, this is a, this is a question that I actually posed to a pro-choice woman on, at one of my college outreaches when I was doing an outreach with JFA. I asked her, uh, you believe in evolution, right? And she said, yeah. And I said, so what would you say if I said that the earth was only 6,000 years old? And without even hesitating, she said, I'd say you're crazy. And I said, right. 
So why can science be trusted when it comes to evolution in the age of the Earth, but not when it comes to when human life begins? And that was a question that really got her thinking. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that we have to, you know, that we have to show is that you, you can't just pick and choose when science is reliable. It, it's either always reliable or it's not always reliable. And if it's not reliable, then you can't, um, you can't think anyone is crazy for denying evolution. But if it is reliable, then you have to accept it as reliable when it comes to when human life begins. So here's where I saw that um, possibly where the, the debate uh, with Matt Dillahunty kind of comes into play because he then, he, almost his entire argument, and I wish I had thought ahead and brought in clips from the, uh, from the debate and to play it on, the, on our program, but maybe we'll do that on a future program. Um, but what he had said, he based his entire argument that even if, and this is the same as Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist argument, even if right. all of that is true and the science is consistent, and we yes, we are killing human beings in the womb, a woman has a right to do so so long as that human being is inside her womb. And it's a bodily rights argument. It's a violinist argument. They're all kind of variations on the theme. And so he had responded that way. And do you think that is the strongest response that any any atheist could make? I really don't think so. And the reason for that is because the bodily rights argument was powerful for a time. But it's now, um, I, I mean, I don't know all philosophers, so I don't want to say it's widely recognized, but it's, it's recognized by many philosophers that bodily rights did not justify abortion. Uh, we, there, uh, there have been pro-life philosophers who've formulated what we, can, what we call the responsibility objection, which basically states that because the woman, and the man of course, but we're talking about the woman specifically here, because the woman engages in an act that, that, you know, that leads to procreation, she and the man are responsible for not only creating the child, but also for placing the child in a state of dependency on her. Because of that, she bears a responsibility to care for the child and not have it killed. Essentially, she waives her right to bodily autonomy. So, so sophisticated modern philosophers don't even really argue from bodily rights anymore. Uh, David Boonin, in his book, A Defense of Abortion, tried to save it, but I, I don't think he succeeded because his analogy is still... Um, still doesn't take into account that sex is an act that leads to pregnancy. So where philosophers like Michael Tooley, Peter Singer, Marianne Warren, and others go now, the argument is is with personhood. It's no longer with bodily rights. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so that's basically where the state of the abortion debate is now. It's, it's really on personhood. It's not really uh, on bodily rights any longer. Wow. Um, so I, I think that, though, I, I mean... I was actually much more satisfied with this debate and the choice of debater, choice of opponent that you had, Matt Dillahunty, because he seemed to articulate, even though, you know, you and I believe that his argumentation is, is a little bit out of date, and it was, but it was good for what it was, for all that it was worth, and I'm not making fun of him, right. I think that it was a good attempt on his part, um, that um, he had articulated it better than... Uh, a few weeks prior to that uh, debate with a college professor um, at my alma mater at Purdue University who had argued completely differently. I'm not going to get into that debate because we talked about it a bit. Um, But um, so I kind of looked at this state where atheists are making, well, not not particularly atheists, but uh, pro-abortion advocates 
activists are making the best case possible for abortion, but yet it's still falling behind uh, the science of mind and the philosophy of mind. Um, do, do they recognize this? I and mean, where is the state of literature? I mean, I know that Matt Dillahunty had to do a little research on this. Um, so um, where do they, do they see their vulnerabilities? Do you see that because you are involved in that much? Do you see that vulnerability? Um, well, yeah, I, I also saw the debate that you're talking about. And I think from a de- debate perspective, the pro-choice person might have been on the right track as far as winning the formal debate. But I think he was on the complete wrong track if it comes to justifying abortion because his position was so counterintuitive and so against everything that, that the laws in the United States stand for that I don't think he would have convinced anybody by, by arguing that way. When it comes to, uh, to abortion arguments, I mean, I, I really don't think they see the weakness of their arguments. Uh, otherwise, if, if they saw that the arguments were weak, why would they continue mm-hmm. making it? So right. I, I, I really don't think it's a case that they see the flaws in it. I, I think they see it as a strong argument, you know, despite these objections, because they, they think that you can formulate other objections that respond to it. Wow. Um, do you see one more about theorizing about the, the arguments, and then we'll get back to the debate itself. Um, sure. So you're seeing that the personhood arguments are being now the focus of, of attention with a lot of pro-choicers and not so much the bodily rights, but I kind of see it kind of cycling around because, again, Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist argument um, has said even if all of this is true, even if we are um, taking the life of a person in the womb, it doesn't matter I mean, that's kind of this, the, the real bare bones of her argument. It doesn't matter because a woman can do whatever she, can, what she wants with her body. Um, and then, you know, I think, I think they're going to be wrapped in a circle, you know, kind of cycling between two different arguments. Do you see that happening? Um, well, not so much from philosophers, because we have to remember that philosophers are the people that are really – taught uh, how to to think critically and how to think about these issues. And Mm -hmm. so the people that I see making the bodily rights argument are the people who maybe haven't studied up on on the issue very much, and they haven't really read the arguments. And so they're still making the same arguments that Thompson did, but Thompson's argumentation is 40 years old. They don't even even keep up to date on, on... where the bodily rights argument has come in the past 40 years. They're still sticking to the, the strict violinist argument and, and thinking mm-hmm. that that's a defeater for the pro-life position, when it's really not, because the, um, the, the responsibility objection is a defeater for the bodily rights argument, because it's conceivable that bodily rights could justify abortion. But the problem is, is that the vi- in the violinist scenario, it's, it's a completely different scenario from pregnancy. Pregnancy is natural. It's, it's very common. It's how each one of us begins life. Whereas in the violinist scenario, it's completely different because you're not, you're not giving somebody life. You're sustaining their life. Uh, it's different because you're an adult who's been kidnapped, whereas in the case of pregnancy, this is, uh, this is a, a mother and father have essentially created new life, a new child, the way that our species procreates. And so... Uh, and so they're, they're really very different scenarios. And so it, it really doesn't seem that the violinist does a very good job of justifying abortion just because they're so different. And that being said, I mean, obviously any analogy that deals with pregnancy, there are going to be disanalogies just because pregnancy is, even though it's very common, it, it's so weird. There's really nothing in the world like it. 
Mm-hmm. But I just, I just don't see people as actually keeping up with where the state of the arguments on the abortion issue are concerned. And so they're still using arguments that are 40 years old, thinking that it, it still justifies abortion, despite the fact that there have been numerous pro-life responses to Thompson's original essay. Cool. Very nice. Um, getting back to the, the debate itself, um, did you find any, anything that Matt Dillahunty had said that gave you pause, that gave you difficulty, that you struggled with? Um, well, yeah, I, I think there's always a struggle in the abortion debate because there are two people who are at conflict here. You have the pregnant woman and you have the unborn child. And so that's not something that pro-life people take lightly, even though pro-choice people think we do because we're trying to put, you know, what they'll, they'll say we're putting the rights of the fetus above the rights of the child. Well, that's not true. We're, we're trying to argue for equal rights, that the mother had the right to live when she was in her mother's womb, and so the unborn child should have that same right. So what, what Matt did, especially during the cross-examination, is he just kept focused on the pregnant woman and trying to make me seem like a monster for, uh, for, trying, to ju- for trying to argue against abortion because, you know, there are women who, who die in pregnancy and childbirth and, you know, the woman's body goes through all these changes and that kind of thing. And so by focusing on the pregnant woman, it was a, you know, it was a great tactic, a great debate tactic rhetorically because now I'm trying to argue against the woman who's in this, you know, really difficult situation when, in fact, um, he fails to recognize that we're also talking about a child who is in the mother's womb and who, you know, is torn apart limb from limb in order to make her, you know, no longer pregnant or is burned to death or just killed through these really, really horrible ways. I mean, we, we, don't, even, um, we don't even kill people on death row through these methods. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. we give them humane or, you know, quote-unquote humane ways to die. We, we treat people on death row better than we treat the unborn. And so by focusing on the pregnant woman, it was a great rhetorical trick, but it you know, but but it keeps it keeps our attention focused away from from what the actual question of the abortion is. Is it right to kill a child um, when when the woman is pregnant? I, I just don't believe um, I just don't believe you can make the case that it is. Great. What kind of advice would you have? Because I don't see this. You know, this issue is not going away. And as long as there are people willing to argue for abortion, there will always be. Um, a person that advocate that does this that ha, you know has very, seems to be very strong rhetorically as you have shown that Matt Dillahunty is. Um, what how, how does a pro life person go from here and become stronger in dealing with such arguments? Uh, well, uh, I, I really have two recommendations. Number one is to read read as much as you can, because there, there are a lot of articles and books that have been written on the abortion issue. Uh, three books in particular I would recommend reading are um, The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf, Defending Life by Frank Beckwith, and The Ethics of Abortion by Christopher Kaxer. Those are what I consider to be pretty much the holy trinity of abortion books. If you read those three books, you'll be able to respond to pretty much any argument that a pro-choice person will raise. On top of those books, and, I mean, there are numerous other pro-life books I could recommend, but I would also recommend reading uh, Thompson's original essay, A Defense of Abortion. I would recommend reading Marianne Warren's essay um, on the moral and legal status of abortion. She's a pro-choice philosopher who argues from personhood. And I would also recommend reading A Defense of Abortion by David Boonin. Those are uh, three of the best defenses of abortion that you can find. And I think it's important for all of us to read and consider arguments that... Um, 
that oppose our own, because you can't really know that you're right unless you know whether or not your arguments can withstand scrutiny. So that's one suggestion I would have. And the other is to understand that we are trying to save the life of unborn children, but there is also the pregnant woman that we have to consider as well. And so I, I think a lot of times pro-life people can fail to consider, and you know, through no fault of their own, they're not, they're not doing this um, you know, maliciously or willfully or anything, but we do have to understand that, that there is another, uh, another person at stake in the issue, and, and that's something that we have to keep in mind and, and realize that even though the logic of the pro-life argument is, is you know, pretty much airtight and secure, you know, there's the emotional aspect, too, that, that we have to treat this respectfully and, and not just, you know, treat it like some kind of, um, of logical puzzle to solve in our ivory towers, but mm. that we also have to care for the pregnant woman as well and that, um, and that there are women that find themselves in, di- in difficult situations and, you know, need help. Because a lot of the times, if, if the pregnant woman does have that help, then she wouldn't even go through with an abortion. So I would just say, you know, read uh, on the issue and... You know, keep you know, don't uh, don't overlook the emotional aspect of the abortion issue as well. Very nice. I think Thomas has a question. Yeah, I do, Lucretia. Hey, Clint. Great, great interview so far. And uh, oh, I'm thank you very much. You, you're welcome. I listened to I listened to your interview, the debate between you and the Matt dude, and I actually one one thing about me, I don't like arrogant people. And so I actually got very irritated with Matt because, you know, when you were when you would present present your side of the debate, he would come back with with like the body something he said was so ridiculous, it was just crazy. And you know, anyway, I wanted to tell you you handled yourself very, very well, you know. But my question to you is kind of a much much deeper and probably more more sinister um, aspect of the abortion issue. And that is the whole purpose for why abortion was brought into being in this nation. And yet, in a pro-life movement, a lot of, a lot of organizations within the pro-life movement are of afraid to embrace, or not embrace, but afraid to address and specifically target the racist root cause of abortion here in America. And I want to ask you, why is that? Because abortion, when we look at its history, even down to um, eugenics and the whole birth control issue, was not only to um, eliminate black people, but disabled people who they considered feeble-minded, the mentally retarded, as Margaret Singer referred to disabled people. So why do you feel like the pro-life movement as a whole has not addressed that? Oh, that's kind of a big question. <laughs> Um, I think that there are pro-life organizations who have addressed that. Myself, personally, I'm not too interested in focusing on the racist aspects of anyone who might be doing abortions. It's pretty clear that Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, probably had 
racist tendencies. She spoke to the KKK, those kinds of things. I don't think it's generally true today that many people affiliated with Planned Parenthood are racist. Uh, I mean, there, there may be people who are, but I, I think a lot of them genuinely feel like they're helping women. And so even though it may have roots in racism, I mean, we, we hear the figure that, um, that abortion is one of the big, you know, biggest killer of, of black and Hispanic people. Um, but, the, the, but the thing about that is that you also have to understand that it, it's good, and it sounds really bad to talk about this in terms of business practices, but we also have to understand that Planned Parenthood is a business. And so it makes good sense to go where the business is. And so if, if the, most people who, who want abortions are people in minorities who also have the, the least, um, you know, who are also the ones who are in poor neighborhoods, then Planned Parenthood is going to go where the business is. So it's not necessarily that they're being racist because of that, but it's because they're, they're just really going where the business is. And so I, I think that while they may have roots, in racism with Margaret Singer, I would just rather focus now, rather than on making a rhetorical point about racism, I would just rather focus on the fact that we are killing unborn human beings, because that, that's bad enough. You know, I, I don't think we, we need to go to racism, because it, it's horrible that, that Planned Parenthood is being allowed to legally kill 1.2 million unborn children every year in the United States. So I, I guess that would be my, um, my answer would be, you know, some do, but... They, they, they don't all because it, it's really not necessary. You know, it's just bad enough that we're allowing them to kill our children anyway. Right, and that and that and you you make a you make a good point. But when when I was asking that question, I wasn't asking from you know in terms of the the viewpoint of the people. I was actually asking from the viewpoint of of uh, you know the actual premise of of the you know of the act of abortion and birth control you know and there there's a whole lot more of it but I I do understand and I respect your I respect your viewpoint but as one who has fought who fights this battle not at the level that you do but you know from a personal standpoint of view from my story and the fact that I am a black individual and who was uh, targeted for abortion. Thank God, my mom said no. But right. I I know the history. I know the history behind it, and um, you know, and there and there's some deep sinister things that have been done, and that that is still going on within Planned Parenthood, the entire abortion industry. That I really believe, and this is based on what I know. You know, just some things that I've learned from people who's also involved in this fight. That if we really exposed it, it would it would also expose some things because you know it's like you made a point. You know, people hear the term racism and they think, oh no, someone is bringing up the race card again. But there are really some elements that are going on within the abortion industry industry that if was truly if it was truly exposed it would really kind of like with Kermit Gosnell and what he did it would really shake this nation to its core so thank you for answering my question hey, you're welcome all right thank, um, thanks Thomas I, I think um, you know the race question 
is relevant, especially here in America, especially in uh, some of the African countries where abortion is being pushed as a quote-unquote human right um, on the UN level. I do see that there is much a, a racial element to it because of people's uh, eugenic mindedness. It's still there. I mean, Margaret Sanger's ideas are still out there. Um, I think, however, that it, it's it's kind of lumped in with a lot of, as, as Clinton had said, the business practices um, that has to be, you know, it, it is after all, and he's right, it is a business. And they they do what uh, what they have to do to do to kill as many children as they can because they charge for every single one of their abortions. And yeah, I and think you know, the history... You... Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the, the eugenic spirit is most definitely alive and well today. Mm-hmm. I, um, Margaret Sanger pr- probably had racist tendencies, but that doesn't necessarily mean that... And there could be. I don't know. I haven't really looked too much into this. But one can believe in eugenics without necessarily believing in racism. Like one could think, well, we need to, you know, uh, adjust these children at the cellular level, but they would mm-hmm. still be morally opposed to someone changing, a, you know, a, a white unborn child to, to black at the cellular level because they would view that as, as racist. So, it, so the, the two, you know, aren't necessarily inclusive. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for thanks for that thought. Um, I wanted to to go on and ask a question of um, kind of switching gears to yet a different controversy. And I said I would bring this up because it is of, it's just become hugely interesting to me how uh, even in the, within pro-life, uh, among pro-life persons and those that are argued very strongly for, for a consistent pro-life ethic, that there is a dis- disagreement over how that ought to be done. And it's actually kind of gotten very accusatory. I should say, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, to give you an that's example, putting it, and I want to that's ask putting you, it politely. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you kind of your opinions about that and, and what this really means for our dialogue going forward. So here I have an example um, of, of how this is all kind of turning out. And so for our audience's sake, I'm going to give a little background to this. Um, since Roe v. Wade has been kind of the established uh, it's not it's not legislation, it's the court decision that kind of rules this land as far as um, abortion is concerned. It is legal through court decision, um, which is to say that no state can make it illegal, make abortion illegal through the legislative process. Um, a lot of states in, in response to that, pro-life legislators, have tried very hard to pass legislation that regulates abortion clinics, makes them conform to this kind of standards of, of regular medical practice. They have sought to limit the number of people who can, um, who, who, I'm sorry, they can make it harder for people to obtain abortions um, by placing restrictions, by placing conditions such as parental consent, and informed consent, as well as um, uh, age limits, all the all these types, and such things like that. So Arizona passed a similar law um, that we have talked about before. It's a law that makes kind of like Texas's HB2, which requires abortion clinics to conform to medical standards in order to operate an abortion clinic. Um, we saw in Texas where that has resulted in the uh, large number of uh, abortion clinic closures 
But yet we have a segment of those who are pro-life saying that such bills are foolish, uh, should not be supported, and uh, is kind of wrong-headed because they... Let me let me not try to make too big of a question out of this. They oppose those bills because it doesn't do enough to end abortion, period. So I'll, I'll start with that, and I'll ask you, what do you think about this type of thinking, this approach to legislation? Okay. Um, wh- which approach are you asking, about, asking me about? Okay. The absolutist the or the incrementalism? The, well, let's, I'm not going to put names on it quite yet. <laughs> I'm just saying the idea that pro-life, consistent pro-life persons should not support legislation that seeks to regulate abortion in some way because okay. it doesn't go far enough and actually ban abortions right. outright. Yeah, uh, I'm not interested in, in naming names either. Um, yeah, so basically I, I, think that's, I think that's foolish and I think that's wrong-headed. Um, that we should not support incremental legislation. Um, number one, if we go back through history, there, there's never, as far as I know, there's never been a social reform movement that has, that has passed overnight, like they passed an absolutist legislation to rid this overnight. It's always been through incremental steps. Uh, even William Wilberforce, a famous example about someone who ended slavery, uh, even he worked incrementally. I mean, he once passed, a, a legislation that would make conditions on slave ships safer for the slaves, but didn't do anything else to end slavery. That was just the legislation. Um, and so if you're going to argue that... So, you know, we, we have precedent through history about working incrementally. So it's, it's not wrong to work incrementally as long as you keep your, your mind on the goal that we all want to end abortion. We just have a different opinion of how that's going to do tactically. So we have precedent, like William Wilberforce, who didn't end slavery overnight, but would uh, sign legislation to make conditions on slave ships safer, even though that didn't stop slavery, it did protect them. And so by the same token, we can pass incremental legislation here in the United States. And as you mentioned in Texas, we see that incremental legislation saves lives. Um, Texas, you know, I think like over half of Texas's abortion clinics now have closed because uh, because of the recent legislation there in Texas. I think they're down to like 19 or, or maybe even less now yeah, uh, at final count. Yeah, so, um, so, so yeah, so we see that incremental legislation does save lives, and the absolutist legislation, such as uh, the personhood amendments that we've seen, not a single personhood amendment has ever passed. So it seems to me that, that, the, that the, the best way to go is working incrementally, because not only... Uh, do these work step-by-step step to eventually get it overturned, but it also gets the debate into the public consciousness so that people are actually debating uh, the morality of this or about you know, how far is too far, that kind of thing. So you, so you get the debate in the public consciousness, and you start working in- incrementally to save lives, such as with the abortion clinics closing and abortionists lose their license to practice, and you know, unborn children are saved uh, because they can't always get a, an abortion right away, and they end up changing their mind uh, later on. So these kinds of legislations do save lives, and it's not that we're trying to just regulate abortion. We, you know, this obviously is not far enough. We want to end abortion. We just believe that the best tactical approach is to do it step by step rather than overnight because we've never had a case in which social reform has happened overnight. Okay. Are we saying 
by approving of a legislation that simply regulates abortion, are we implicitly saying that abortion is okay under the conditions that are outlined in the legislation? No, and and that's silly that people actually make that argument. And I'm, I'm not saying you. I know that there are people who make that argument. I'm saying that that's just a silly thing to say. We're not approving of abortion at all. We are passing incremental legislation that we believe has the best chance of getting passed. Uh, for example, I, I don't think um, if we were to pass legislation that would end abortions, I believe that we would have to leave in the rape exception. I don't think it's far enough, but I don't think abortion legislation that makes abortion illegal in the case of rape right now would be passed. And so um, they would say that we're you know, holding hands with the pro-choice movement because we, we believe that children conceived in rape aren't valuable. Well, that's just a complete straw man of our position. Um, we want to pass the legislation that has the best chance of doing so. And so we're, we're not approving of abortion. We're saying that this, you know, this is what we believe has the best chance of saving lives right now. It's about saving what lives you can when you can. Um, what about the objection that you're teaching people that conditions, if conditions are correct, then abortion is acceptable? Um, if conditions are correct, then so no. I mean, I think that meeting argument, certain conditions. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that I think that argument fails for the same reason that uh, for the reasons I just outlined in, in the last part. That it, it's not it's not teaching people anything. It's it's just passing what legislation we can when we can. But we keep the debate going. We keep the conversation open and saying, look, we've done this. We we have to go further because these children are still being killed. But if we were to you know put too many. Uh, to put too many restrictions on abortion legislation, it's not going to get passed, especially since we have multi-million dollar organizations like Planned Parenthood who are actively working to oppose it. And, and they don't be, you know, they're not going to be honest about the legislation. They're going to outright lie about what the mm-hmm. legislation means. Mm-hmm. So we really have an uphill battle that, um, that we're fighting against Planned Parenthood, and it's not helped that there are people in the pro-life movement who fight against each other. I mean, we can disagree mm-hmm. all we want. Um, you know, the abolitionists, in America that were ending slavery disagreed on whether absolutist or incrementalist was the way to go. But to my knowledge, um, they, they didn't fight against each other. They would still vote for each other's legislation because they understood that they were both on the same side trying to end slavery. So I think that that's what we need to do here, too, is that we, we need to be on the same side. I mean, I, I, don't think, I don't think absolutist legislation would pass, but I would still vote for it because I, because I believe it should pass, even though I'm not mm-hmm. confident about it. So mm-hmm. I think that we need we still need to act like we're on the right on the same side and be united in our goal of ending abortion even if we have to um sit back um in a case where where we're not able to uh, to do as much as we'd like. We we have to understand that we need to save what lives we can when we can. Right. Um what's your response to the accusation like I said it's the accusatory accusation that just such a mindset is compromising a consistent pro-life point of view? And that we shouldn't be compromising. Um, right. It's so. I don't know. I I, I see support for the idea that we should never compromise. Because um, now, I, I believe that we should find common ground with pro-choice people without compromising our views. Like if I'm talking to a pro-choice person, I might agree that their argument uh, makes sense. You know, if, if they're talking about women who are poor, I might say, well, you know, yeah, I, I agree that women who are in poverty have have a very difficult situation, but 
by finding common ground with them, I'm not compromising. I'm not saying abortion is right if a woman feels she can't afford to raise a child. I'm, I'm just saying that I understand that she's in a difficult situation. So we can find common ground without compromising our views. But when it comes to legislation, that's something that's different. If we don't compromise, then we're never going to get legislation passed, which means that, uh, uh, which means that thousands more unborn children are going to die uh, because we, you know, stuck to our ideology, rather than passing the legislation that we can pass to save those lives. So, so when we're talking about actual human lives that are that are in danger, I, I think that that some compromise is necessary with the idea that we're going to continue until we eventually see abortion uh, done away with in our country. Okay. Um, and as an example of having diverse points of view, Thomas um, and I frequently kind of. But has about little aspects of this, and I believe he has a question. So, Thomas, fire away. Oh, sure. Okay, Clint, just for uh, just for uh, clarity's sake, I am I'm I'm one of those exceptions, babies. Not babies. I'm a tubal pregnancy survivor. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you, like you just said, I understand. I understand the point of incrementalism, the incremental steps to ending abortion. I will never agree with it. I understand it. And here's the reason why. Let me tell you the reason why I don't agree with incrementalism. Because when legislation is passed with exceptions in it, once that legislation is passed, there is no one who's working in the background to come up with legislation that will also eventually protect those those babies who were left out of the original pro-life um, legislation. And here's the thing: the the abortion advocates they they always look at every contingency. They have their lawyers prepared and working on every single every single facet, whether it's pro-life legislation with exceptions, whether it's pro-life legislation without exceptions. They don't care. So my whole thing is this. If the argument for incrementalism is going to be made, why is it? so hard to also have people also researching possible legislation down the road that could be possibly crafted to protect all babies. Because to me, no matter what what one says, as one who was born under the acceptance clause, what I'm hearing is that my life is expendable for the greater good of the cause unless someone can tell me why it's in my best interest as an exceptions cause baby to accept incrementalism. So I would like for you to make that case to me and help me understand why is, why is it that my life is expendable. Um, well, my my first thought is that your life isn't expendable, and by supporting incremental legislation, um, I'm not saying that anybody's life is expendable, but I could also turn this back around on you. 
if we pass, uh, for example, we passed recently the legislation in Texas that all babies who are, um, that all children who are past 20 weeks in the womb because they can feel pain, they, they've made abortion illegal in those cases. So now if I were to turn this around on you, my question would be why, uh, if we didn't pass that legislation, then those babies would still be killed. And, in fact, a lot more babies would be killed because they would have a lot more abortion clinics because most of them were forced to close down. So my question would be, why are those lives expendable for the ideology that we, that we must save everyone or no one? My, my, answer would be, my answer to that would be, why do we have to choose? And I could actually, and I could actually use scriptural precedent um, to, you know, to for my point of view, where Jesus in telling the parable of the 99, where there was one sheep going astray, he left the 99 in a group where they were protected, and he went off after the one. And, you know, in the premise that regardless of whatever it takes, Jesus never left anyone behind, but in the name of compromise, we're looking at legislation that does leave some behind because for me, I'm 100% unequivocally pro-life, regardless. See, the difference is, you know, I can understand legislation. I may not agree with it, I can under, and I can understand the tactics, but also... I could look at it from a standpoint of view and say, hey, to make incrementalism better, if that's what you want to do, maybe we should also over here have some researchers, uh, lawyers preparing and maybe researching ways that later on we can go back and revisit, you know, the laws and see if we can add protections in there that would protect all babies. The thing of it is, is that once incremental legislation is passed, then everyone is moving on to, you know, another thing rather than looking at how the law can be made better. Because that's what that's what pro aborts do. They'll get something passed, and then they'll look they'll look at how can we keep pushing the envelope and and pushing the envelope. And that's all I'm saying. If there was two facets to the incrementalism fight, I could I could possibly embrace it as a as one who was born under the exception clause. But because yeah, it's but all my or my nothing. question would go ahead. Yeah, but my question would be though is how do you know that no one in Texas now is involved in writing more pro life legislation? I mean, I'm, I'm not involved in the legal process, so I can't speak to what they are or are not doing. Uh, I would hope that there are those trying to pass legislation. But you, you sound pretty sure that now that we have the bill in Texas I, that stopped abortions after 20 weeks, that now there's no possibility that anyone else could be writing further uh, pro-life legislation to try and save more babies. I mean, the, the same argument was made back in the late 90s when they, when they pushed forward the uh, partial birth abortion ban. Well, the partial birth abortion ban passed, but pro-life legislators didn't stop there. They they kept passing pro-life legislation. Now we have the you know the the pain capable abortion act in Texas and in other places. So just because pro-life legislators pass these these bills doesn't mean that they're going to stop there. And I think it's kind of presumptuous to assume that they are. 
Um, and it's also kind so, of um, presumptuous to assume that um, that that those who believe that incrementalism is the best strategy are not 100% unequivocally pro-life, because I, I assure you that I am. But, uh, but the problem is, is that you, you have to ask yourself, are we willing to let those millions of unborn children die until we can pass all-or-nothing legislation, or should we save what lives we can, when we can, and save some lives now, more lives later, and all lives, or well, obviously not all lives because abortion is never going away, uh, even when it's made illegal, but, you know, should we allow all those lives to die just, just for our ideology and just so we don't, you know, give the appearance that we might have common ground with pro-choice people, or do we save what lives we can when we can? Um, in fact, here's an analogy that I think of. If you're in a burning house and, um, and one room is blocked off that you can't save the people inside, but there are people out in the living room that you can save, do you go in and save the people in the living room and, and let the others die, or do you let them all die because you can't save them all? Well, it sounds like that's what the um, all-or-nothing crowd is willing to do, to let all children die unless they can save all of them. And I just don't think that's realistic. And as a final point to respond to your argument, I really think the uh, Jesus leaving the one, uh, leaving the 99 to find the one, is really taken out of context because that's um, that's in a context of salvation, whereas that's not in a context of you know several people are in mortal danger. You you can't save them all. Do you save some or do you let them all die? Um, it, it's really kind of apples and oranges that we're comparing here. It's, it's salvation versus um, you know saving lives from from an atrocity, basically. Well, I will I will respond like this, and then I'll give it back to Patricia. You yourself said, "Save some now. Work on saving some later." One, that's exactly what I'm talking about. But see, here's the thing: if that was what was being done by legislators who support incrementalism, incremental steps, it would it would be known. It would be known. One. Two, I'm not an all or nothing crowd. But my my whole thing is this. If we're going to allow ourselves in the name of compromise with you know, because we want the best chance to have legislation go forth in the name of compromise we have to put all these provisions in there to save some at the sacrifice of others you know really I don't, I don't know I, I don't know if it's a fair assessment to say that I want I think millions should die because I want I want all to be protected. That you know, that's kind of that's kind of um that's kind of really that's kind of unfair but it also it also strikes at a personal place because I was born under that clause in nineteen seventy four. But you know what? I understand I perfectly understand your point of view. I understand the arguments made for it, but I, you know, as one who looks at it, who looks at it from a position of, I know how incrementalism could work, but it it does 
take, you have to have someone, you have to have groups of legislators working on, if you're working on one aspect of the bill, you should, you should always have someone working on another aspect of the bill to bring it together because that's the only way you're going to save, you're going to save everyone eventually. Because that's what you said. That's what you said. Your own words. You save some. You save in some as many as you can now to save more later. And I'm assuming mm-hmm. you were talking about those who are left under the exception clause. So to save those later, you have to have folks working behind the scenes, and it has to be known. Because to bring the pro-life movement together, those of us who who are who are without exception, we have to know that there is work that is being done rather than being divided. Maybe those of us who are the no exception could actually come together and we could work on the, that side of the legislation. Y'all can work on the incrementalism and we can, we can find the common ground. But rather than that, you have entire organizations uh, pro-life organizations who have sabotaged legislation, no exceptions legislation, because they did not feel that that was the best avenue going forward. And in that case, that still pre- that produces well, the division. Okay, but, but what what your what I think um, Clinton had already answered is I think it's. We can we can't assume that nobody is doing that, and I think you said that nobody's going back and trying to find a patch for um, the exceptions in most of our pro-life legislation. I don't think we can say that there is nobody doing that. I can think there are people there are trying to work on that, and um, I think you said that. Yeah. So, so then, if that's happening, wouldn't wouldn't it be? to bring unity to that argument between incrementalists and um, abolitionists. And just for um, clarity's sake, I'm not an abolitionist because, you know, personally I don't, I don't like the groups because it is a, it is a sign of division. But if, if that's what's happening, that could actually – Folks to say, hey, this is um, what we're doing. We are yeah. doing this. So let's let's kill this divide. Because well, I don't, I don't, right. Well, we get that. I think I think there could be people out doing that. I mean, I don't know if they have to necessarily come out and say that out loud, um, but I I do believe that there are there are interested legislators in right. eliminating these exceptions. Right. And I think so too. It just it just needs to be it needs to be known so that we can we can close the gap of division. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing I care about is getting rid of the division. Because my argument, my my belief is my belief, and at the end of the day, it's not going to it's mm-hmm. not going to kill me. And unlike a lot of those, a lot of um, no exception crowd who are very extreme. I'm not going to blast you, Clint, for your viewpoint because I, I understand your viewpoint to articulate it very well. We just agree on the method, but at the end of the day, I don't hate you, and I'm not out to curse you the hell like 
some of the stuff they're saying. To me, that also doesn't add to, that doesn't, that doesn't help. It makes us look like laughingstock to the pro-abortion community because mm. they're like, <laughs> look at them. They don't right. So, right. Go ahead, Leticia. I'm done. And that, that was a good exchange, Clint. I appreciate you answering my questions. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Right. Um, so it looks like, you know, this is kind of a, an ongoing uh, discussion. I think that it's a very healthy thing to examine both um, kind of both ways of thinking. In fact, you know, I'm engaged in a conversation with somebody about this very thing uh, right now. And it's it can be very frustrating. But um, do you see on the other side of this, you know, what will history say? I mean, give me your best Clinton Wilcox prediction um, over the oh. next, Hopefully not as long as 40 years, but, um, you know, over time, what do you think is going to happen in within the pro-life community um, to affect, you know, the kind of change that we're looking for to eventually abolish abortion? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really, really, really bad at making predictions, and <laughs> I am a relative newcomer to the pro-life field. I mean, I've only been studying it extensively for about four years now, and I think that's about as long as I've been involved, too. So all, all, I, all I have are the writings of the pro-life movement, you know, from, uh, from Roe v. Wade, 1973, till now. Um, so I, I really can't speak from first-hand experience. I, I think that the pro-life movement is much stronger now than it's ever been. Uh, I, I, I don't think that we're perfect. I mean, obviously there's still um, some division that goes on between it, but I, I, I still think generally the pro-life movement seems a lot stronger now than it did back then. And mm-hmm. if, if you're asking about the next 40 years, I know there are some who believe that our generation is going to be the one that ends abortion. I am not that confident um, just because it's so ingrained in our country and it, and it is very difficult because we have, you know, uh, the women that we have to consider as well, uh, and the you know the rights to bodily integrity and things like that. And so mm-hmm. I'm not as confident that it's going to end in this generation, but I, I do have. But I am very confident that it will end, um, you know, at, at some point. I mean, probably within the next two generations. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would love to be proven wrong. I would love for it to be ended in 20 years. You know, so yeah. I, I really that's kind of my prediction. I'm hopeful yet, um, you know, trying to remain realistic at the same time. Sure. Well, thank you for coming on the program and spending all this time with us. And I really, it's been a blast. I really love this. And uh, I would love to see you back on again. Yeah, yes, I'd love that too. It was, yeah. you, you did a good job, my friend. And like I said, I have, I have immense respect for you. Even though we don't agree with methods, you know, at the end of the day, you are an ally in this site. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Right, and um, terrific job on the debate. I hope that we can do this again sometime and with maybe other people to come and speak for the pro-abortion side and see what they have to say. This is, um, I think there's a lot of a good dialogue that happens in these things. And so thank you very much for participating in both the show and the debate. Oh, my pleasure. All right, we'll see you next time. Okay. Yep. Clinton Wilcox, everybody from Life Training Institute. Um, so here's here's what I typically do after um, everybody's had their say. I get mine, <laughs> as if uh, as if you uh, didn't want to hear me more about this. But here I had referred to the fact that I have been having an ongoing discussion about uh, just what we were talking about, which is the difference between differences in between um, the viewpoint 
that we have to um, abolish abortion. I will use the word abolish because I think it's totally appropriate to use the word abolish. Abolish abortion, which I mean legally, we make it a crime, we legally ban it, to abolish it versus outright, I mean abolish it outright versus taking legislative steps to box it in. And I know that whatever language I choose to use about it in an incremental fashion is going to just be thrown out as and trampled on as incrementalist fodder, you know, but it, I want people to listen to this very carefully. Um, and this is the point of view that I take about it. And it's not an incremental point of view. I think it's just a very realistic point of view. And this is, this is, this is it. Abor- abortion in this country was not made legal by a legislative process. And it will not be made illegal through the legislative process. What stands in the way between life for the unborn and our status quo today is the, is the Supreme Court of the United States and Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. And until one or both of those cases is overturned and or personhood amendment, a constitutional amendment is changed to specifically name unborn persons as persons protected under the Constitution and the laws of the United States, which will cause a constitutional crisis. Unless those, either of those things happens, abortion will never be made illegal for completely through any legislative process whatsoever. So a state like Texas can pass a 20-week pain-capable abortion ban they can, they can pass a 20-week pain-capable abortion ban. They cannot pass a zero-week pain-capable, or not even pain-capable, a zero-week abortion ban. So those who are saying, we, are not, we, we have to not compromise, we cannot support legislation that simply regulates abortion clinics, that simply uh, applies a time limit on when a woman can obtain abortion, it, that is not good enough because uh, we want it to apply to all nine months of pregnancy from conception to birth and beyond. That simply is not a viable thing for any legislature in any state to do at this point in time. We would like it to. I would love it to be that way. I'd love it so that we can pass a piece of legislation tomorrow that says we – this is terrible. I'm having way much too much stuff going on here in this house. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. But um, unless, unless that obstacle is removed in some way, shape, or form, like I said, abortion cannot be legislated um, for for at, for all nine months of pregnancy, it's legal through the act of the supreme of, of the supreme court, and it has to be made illegal by either overturning that or passing a personhood amendment. I am for a personhood amendment if it could ever get off the ground. If it ever came up in my state, 
I would vote for it. I would. But am I going to get a 51% majority to vote with me? I don't know. I would campaign for that. I would encourage people to do so. I would shout, you know, from the top of the building as loud as I can for people to uh, vote for such a thing and support such a thing. But what will happen? I don't know. I'm not sure that it has uh, the capability of being passed with the majority. So I'm shrugging my shoulders saying that what is available to us may not be what we want. Because like people who call themselves abolitionists, I'd like to call myself an abolitionist in the true sense of the word, I would love to see abortion completely eliminated as a legal option tomorrow, today even. But our legislative options are limited, and we have to work with what we have. We do. That is not an option to legislate abortion out of existence. So just because, for the, for the virtue of that, those circumstances, incrementalism becomes our only options, our only legislative options. We have to regulate it. And the goal is not simply to have cleaner, safer abortion clinics. That's not the goal. So please, if anybody wants to misunderstand me, don't misunderstand me on that. That is not the goal. And the goal is not to have younger embryos, young, I'm sorry, younger unborn people being killed, whereas older unborn people becomes a moral outrage. That is not the goal. The goal is eventually to choke the abortion industry as a whole to death. So if we cannot legislate the if we can't legislate a ban on abortion, we will legislate abortion until it dies. So in effect, we are trying to abort the abortion industry through a series of steps uh given the tools that we have. So I I want to tell people that have that want to argue for absolutism or whatever you want to call it immediatism, that as much as good as that sounds, as much and as desirable as that sounds, we would if we could, but we can't. And so we have to take the alternative. It's not because anybody believes that um, babies at any point in time are, should be killed and it's, it's okay, or that if we make sure that women are not harmed in the process, that then it's okay or it's acceptable at any time. But we are trying to go about it in the way with the tools that we are given. So I just wanted to, I know I've kind of beat that dead horse to, to, uh, to a third, fourth, fifth death. But I wanted to make sure that people understand that very clearly. That I don't think that those that, cons- that are accused of being incrementalists are necessarily acu- are, are guilty of thinking that it's okay to kill children uh, before a certain time. Um, now, of course, I do think there are people who are not fully pro-life that believe in the exceptions. They believe in um, in abortion up to a certain point in time. They're, they're out there, too. And if you want to have an argument with them, please have an argument with them. And don't have an argument with me about that or anybody else who doesn't take that point of view. That's 
to me is just not fair. If you want to take that argument, take it to the people that actually believe that. So that's all I really have to say about that. I want to get to our uh, stupidest thing ever today. Uh, which Yay! Is awesome. Stupidest thing ever. Woohoo! <laughs> Which is awesome. You're going to love this because um, I look at the stupidest thing ever as today's as a sign of how things are, but everybody's trying to ignore it. So let me play the theme music and get it rolling. Hey, this is not first class. minorities. I'm over here because we're all over on this side, right? What you'll also find, wait, we have we have a half. We have a half. So so our children that we find that are in the lower percentile and the highest the highest highest ability to go up, right? Are being denied access to some of these grade schools. Mr. Speaker, I cannot believe the distinguished lady from Aurora just did. And I have a profound amount of respect for her. But when you turn and only look at the Democratic side of the aisle and say, oh, minorities only, I guess we don't have any minorities on my side of the aisle. But what I will also say is that when I represent 108,000 people, it's a very diverse group. It's not one monolith, not one particular demographic or background. It's 108,000 people of all different backgrounds. So I don't think that's very fair, Representative, what you did. That's terrible. Wow, you can you can really feel the indignation um, in his voice. And, I, you know, if I were sitting there, I probably would be five times as upset. But that was Representative Chapalavia, state representative, I believe it was Colorado. Do I have that right? Um, um, I thought it was Texas. But oh, you, might be, you might be right, Texas. Um, refers to black Republican on in the Texas legislature as a half. Now, we don't, we're not, we're supposed to speculate about what that half is, um, and we will just a minute. Uh, but what makes what she said so stupid? It's the fact that it rolled off her tongue so effortlessly that I have to believe that she talks about this. At least she thinks this often that party lines are drawn around races and not about politics. Granted, I don't think she meant her remarks to sound as offensive as they did. To her credit, she did apologize. She did apologize afterward. But the fact remains that there is a high level of prejudice against Republicans on race, motives for which, which are completely without merit. Well, Kudos for her. Kudos to her for apologizing after claiming she was taken out of context. Guess what? She wasn't. But that is still the stupidest thing ever. And heck yeah to the Republican state rep who rebuffed her. Yay. And, you know, there's fallout from this because, I mean, I think, for one thing, 
the Republican Party in that state did well by not letting this go so easily. Because you know if she were she had an R above, on, behind her name, the Democrats will never let this go. She will, they will bury her with it. Now, that's the shoes on the other foot. Okay, string her along a little bit. So now meet um, the half from state, represent, uh, state representative John Anthony. He uh, apparently the half that she is referring to is the fact that he has a one of his parents is Caucasian, so he's half black. I, I don't, I, you know, I I really can't even bring myself to um, label people based on their their parental genetic makeup. That's really not even part of what I, my language. I know that it's stuck and stuck and stuck on you know stuck on Democrat. But as a Republican, I want to see people pass the color of their skin. Is that such a horrible thing? No, but wait. Did you just say, and I thought I heard this, but did this lady mention something about the individual only being half black or something like that? She didn't even say that. She just said we have a half. Ooh. and pointed to the you know the Republican side of the room. Now, if I were really really snarky, which I could be, <laughs> I could say, no, "Don't you mean, don't you mean Representative Chapalavia? Don't you really mean three fifths?" Mm. I think you should send that to her in a, on Twitter or something. What do you think? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I got to think about that. I just might. I just might. If you if you double-dog dare me, I might do it. I dare dog double triple <laughs> combo ice cream. Social. Something like that. All right. Well, you know, regardless of what she said, I, I might do it. Okay, you know what? If you put money down on it, I might do it. <laughs> no, we're, we'll, we'll do that, and we'll take the hate mail for it. How about that? Yep. Yeah, so so Representative Anthony responds and says, as a black Republican, I recognize this is not the first time that race has been used in a debate in a legislative forum, nor sadly is it likely to be the last. Our reaction should always be to condemn the use of race as a tool to divide Americans from each other, which is what she did, and instead recommit ourselves to debating public policy differences on their merits on racial, ethnic, or purely partisan grounds. Amen and amen to that. Can we say maybe all the smart people are sitting around him, no matter what their color is? So um, stay tuned for um, we're going to have a super-duper show planned for you on May 2nd. Uh, this is bombshell from us. Come back next week and the week after and the week after, but please be take May 2nd in um, consideration because we have the producers of the upcoming film about Kermit Gosnell on True Life Fridays Radio. They're interviewing with us. It's going to be huge. It's going to be spectacular. They have gotten... Um, Lots of press since they went uh, public with their uh, public funding needs 
for this film. I wanted to make sure everybody understood that it's going to be not a documentary, but um, a drama, dramatization of Kermit Gosnell and his story. And everybody needs to know more about it. Everybody needs to see it when it comes out and support this film because you have been sorely mistreated by the media who made a deliberate choice not to come forward with the Kermit Gosnell story. I mean, HuffPo admitted as much. that They were going to not report on it. And that's very sad. Um, the public has been very much betrayed by the media. Don't let it happen again. So have a happy Good Friday. Um, enjoy your services uh, and, you know, really relish in the fact that Jesus died for us. It's all, it's all for our lives and our sakes. And uh, happy, happy Good Friday, Thomas. Hey, Letitia, before we go, yeah, something that I forgot to add, and it's kind of a fun announcement. Um, I don't know when I'm going to film my first one, but um, FDF Radio, I mean, <laughs> Frederick Douglass Foundation of Missouri, we have a YouTube channel. And I am going to start filming um, clips and posting them on YouTube, just kind of increasing our, you know, our viewership, if you will, not just with True True Life Fridays Radio, but with um, Reality and Christ Worship Radio and just the entire brand. So stay tuned for that, folks. It's going to be fun, snarky, some cases. May call a few people and get some interviews and that sort of thing. So stay tuned. Cool. Very and nice. Happy Sabbath and Resurrection Sunday. Thank you. Yeah, yep. Sunday's coming. That's the hope of the resurrection. We're going to end our True Life Friday program broadcast today with Awaken Alive. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.